Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. So, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen back at Christmas time the birth narrative of Jesus and the Magi. And then we jump forward to when Jesus is about 30 years old at the time of the beginning of his ministry and when John the Baptist begins his. After being baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And then look at verse 11, the last verse from last week's passage. I'm just going to read from 11 to the end of this week's passage. It's short. It's just through verse 17. Let me start at the end of last week's passage, Matthew 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." That's God's Word. Look back with me again. From verse 11 to 12, it may not look like much to to you and I just reading it quickly. The end of the temptation in the wilderness, the devil leaves him. And then verse 12, now when he heard John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. may not seem like much of a jump in time, but over a year of Jesus' ministry has just flown past us with no comment from Matthew. Um, Interestingly enough, if you take your Bible and you read the tail end of John chapter 1, all the way through John 2, John 3, and John 4, all of that happens between verses 11 and 12 in Matthew chapter 4. And the way we know this, if you wouldn't mind just flipping to John 3, I want to show you a key verse that will help you see what I'm talking about here. Matthew chapter 3. Look at verses 22 to 24. So this is right after John 3.16. Look at Matthew, uh, John 3.22. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, there's the parenthesis in a lot of Bibles. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, that's a key chronological marker. John is telling us that what happens in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of John all take place before John is imprisoned, whereas the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tend to jump right ahead to Jesus' Galilean ministry that happens, it starts really after John is imprisoned. So we get a snapshot of Jesus' ministry that's unique in John, and I'm going to use a map here, and I don't have this written down, which is probably my own mistake. I'm going to try to remember. We'll see what happens. If I get something wrong, please forgive me, but um, so... Uh, Jesus, obviously born at the bottom of the map in Bethlehem. They escape to Egypt after the Magi come when Jesus is maybe one-ish. We don't know the exact time. He then returns. His family comes back from Egypt, and they go to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus is raised, right there in Nazareth for the first basically 30 years of his life. He's working as a carpenter, masonry, that kind of stuff with his dad, Joseph. And then when Jesus decides to begin his ministry, he leaves Nazareth and he comes down probably in this region where he is baptized by John, as we saw previously. And then he's led into the wilderness for temptation, which remember, if I can get it here, 
That last block at the bottom is the Judean wilderness where Jesus is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. After the 40 days and 40 nights, the part that Matthew leaps past, right, in his narrative that John tells us about, Jesus actually goes to Galilee earlier. He meets with Peter, and he meets with Andrew, and he meets with Nathaniel, and I think John, and he speaks with them, and he does his first miracle right around here, uh, the, the wedding at Cana. He turns water into wine. And then we're told in John chapter 2 that after that first miracle, he comes down south to Jerusalem. This is when he cleanses the temple for the first time. He does it twice. He cleanses the temple with the rope, with the whip, in John chapter 3, early in his ministry. Then he does it again in the last week of his ministry. He cleanses the temple to begin and end his ministry. So Jesus is down in Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple, and then we are told that he has this long conversation with Nicodemus right? That's the, you must be born again. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. All that's taking place there. And then we are told that Jesus actually spends some extra time in this area of Judea with John, and they're both making disciples and baptizing simultaneously in the same region. John is the only person to tell us about this, and John has to put a parenthesis to say, hey, if you've already read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were written before John was written, you may be confused about what I'm talking about right now. I'm telling you about something that they did not include in their gospel, this ministry where John and Jesus were both ministering simultaneously. Then, around this time, Jesus heads back north to his hometown of Nazareth, and right around this time is when John is finally arrested by Herod for speaking against his relational decisions, put it that way, right? So when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, again, Matthew gives us the, the briefest version of this. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 4, if you're, you may not be there right now, but Matthew four thirteen just says, let me start in verse 12, and now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, that's where Nazareth is, right? That northern region, Galilee is this whole area up here, and so he goes up to Nazareth in Galilee, his hometown. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Now stop for a second. Matthew leaves out why he left Nazareth. But Luke tells us, remember? Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes back to his home synagogue at this exact moment. He sits down on the Sabbath day on a Saturday, and they have a scroll from Isaiah that needs to be read. Jesus steps forward. He reads from Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 42, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and all that, all the, 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 the day of the Lord's visitation. He rolls up the scroll. He sits down and all the eyes in the synagogue were just glued on him. This is his hometown. They've known him his whole life. He's probably been going to the synagogue for three decades. They look at Jesus. I remember when I had him in Sunday school when he was a little, little child. You know, I mean, that's the kind of environment he's in. And he's sitting there in that moment and Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're going, wow, this is something right here. And then a little later, he tells a story about God blessing Gentiles in the Old Testament, but not blessing Jewish people. Remember? Uh, the, the widow and during Elijah's day, who was, and, and Naaman. These are people who were not Israelites, yet God blessed them and did not give the same blessing to Israelites. And when the, when the Jewish people of Jesus' hometown hear this, They say, none of that pro-Gentile stuff here. They take him to a cliff in his hometown, try to throw him down to his death, and Jesus, passing through their midst, goes on his way. Some miraculous way, Jesus just gets out of the mob. And where does he go? He goes to Capernaum. You can see right there on the map. Now, Capernaum, this spot right here at the top of the Sea of Galilee, that is where Jesus is sort of home base for the majority of his ministry in the Gospels. This is where his ministry really begins to take off in a more formal sense, and that's where both Matthew and Mark really start the ministry of Jesus, bypassing the earlier events of his life. Now, if that makes sense, I'm going to zoom in here on Capernaum. 
this camera angle will be looking this direction. If you can see the arrow, we're looking this direction over the sea. And this is uh, Capernaum today. And um, let me zoom in just a little closer here. So if you see here, this building right here, you see that building right there? That synagogue, the white marble and the white stone that you see was built a few centuries after Jesus, after Jesus. But the black stone foundation is the same foundation stone that was built before Jesus. Which means when Jesus preached in the synagogue in Capernaum, like when he said, I'm the bread of life, John 6 said that happened in the synagogue in Capernaum, that's within where I just bordered that. Jesus was standing in that synagogue, like the actual square footage, when he said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. So Jesus is in this very area, and Peter lives right nearby. People think Peter's house is located here underneath that church that's been built there. We don't know if that's true, but we know Peter's house was right near the synagogue. That's when Jesus heals Peter's sick mother-in-law who has fever. So this is Capernaum, this is a fishing town, this is where Peter is from, this is where these guys are from, and this is where Jesus camps out and lives for a good bit of the time during the years of his public ministry. Okay, I'm going to jump back here to our text. I hope that makes some sense. Let's return to verse 12 of Matthew 4. Again, God's Word says this, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Well, if you wouldn't mind, would you hold your spot here and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, way back in your Old Testament there, Isaiah chapter 9. As you are turning there, these are the kind of things that I and probably you may, maybe it's easy to miss this kind of stuff, like why are we making this emphasis, Matthew? Why are you making this point? For us today, it might be hard to see it. For Jews at the time, this would have been strange. The Messiah is here okay, the Messiah is here. He's going to be in Jerusalem most of the time, right? That's where the upper echelon people are. He's going to certainly be in Judea, the more faithful southern kingdom than the northern kingdom, north of Samaria, up in Galilee where the Gentiles are intermixed with the Jews. There's no way this Messiah is going to hang out up in Galilee. This was considered backwater. This is backwoods. This is the less educated, the less sophisticated. Remember when Peter was denying Jesus? Your accent betrays you. You sound like a Galilean. That's not a compliment, okay? Galilee was backwoods. That's the way they thought of it. Why in the world would the Messiah show up and not be in the palace in Jerusalem? Why would he not be in the temple? Why would he be way up north, north of Samaria in Galilee where a bunch of Gentiles are hanging out, a bunch of unclean Gentiles? And Matthew knows that's going to be an issue for his readers. So he says, listen, this isn't just a kind of random coincidence or accident. This is predicted 700 years ago by Isaiah Look at the, we'll start with the last verse of chapter 8 into chapter 9 of Isaiah. So look at 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they shall be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now what you will see here is um, Galilee and Naphtali, uh, let, me, let me put the map up one more time. So if you look here, you can see where 
Naphtali and, and, and Zebulun, you can see here, are located right there. So it's the uppermost, uh, kind of the northwest corner of the promised land of where the tribes had their dispersed land. And this was the part where, look, Gentiles are living right up here, right? You got Gentiles living here. And on top of that, not only on the border of Gentiles, you remember this? Isaiah is predicting both the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. When the Assyrians come, they clean house on the northern kingdom, this whole upper area here, everything really north of Jerusalem. They clean house, and what do they do? They take the elites from Israel, the Jewish people, like Daniel's a later person from the southern kingdom, but they take the elites back home to Assyria, and they try to brainwash them and assimilate them into a false religion. And what do they do? The Assyrians send their people with their false religion back to Israel, and what happens? You have Israelites intermarrying with complete Assyrians and Babylonian pagans, and they are now worshiping syncretistically different gods at the same time. They're worshiping different religions along with God, and this, this is all kind of half Jewish, half Gentile. There's a lot of Gentiles living in this area. Well, what's, what's the point of all this? The point is, Isaiah promised that although they got a really bad treatment during the captivity. The captivity started up here with the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. That's where the first people were sent away in in exile. God promises, not only did you get the worst part at the beginning of the exile, you guys, specifically Naphtali and Zebulun, you're going to get a special blessing in the time of the Messiah. Here's what he says, verse 2. I know this is a Christmas passage, but but, but it fits all time of year. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, that's These people have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is great. This is good. After exile, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." The day of Midian is Gideon, remember, winning that incredible battle with few troops. He's saying, just like then, God is going to get Assyria and Babylon out of your hair. God's going to do a redemptive work. He's going to bring joy, verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, all those soldiers who've been messing with you, all their materials are going to be burned up. The, The war will be over. What's going to be the sign of this turning point, this ultimate victory? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you can turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Oh, I forgot to give you my outline. This is very professional of me. Let me give you two. Let me give you this to two simple points. It's not complicated. Number one, the king's movements, which is verses 12 to 16. The king's movements, which we've already been discussing. And point number two, the king's message, which is verse 17. King's movements, verses 12 to 16. The king's message, verse 17. And I've just titled the sermon, Jesus Begins to Preach. Jesus Begins to Preach. So we're looking at the king's movements Now, let's talk a little bit about the darkness that Jesus walks into. Let let, let me say this as clearly as I can. Spurgeon was great on this. We have the kind of God, mighty God, 
everlasting father, prince of peace. We have the kind of God, the kind of Messiah, who when he arrives on the scene, he gravitates towards the darkness. He gravitates towards the the has-beens and the have-nots. He gravitates toward the person in the room nobody wants to talk to. That, that, that is the instinct of the Messiah. So he doesn't gravitate toward the elites. Someone said to Jesus, we know that you don't look at the faces of men. In other words, you don't care what people think. You don't live for human approval. You do what's right before the eyes of God, wh- whether people understand that or not. So we, we, let us be more like Jesus. When we see darkness over here and there's need over here and we don't want to go there, because going towards darkness and need is always demanding of us, right? It's hard work. It, it takes labor and time and energy and effort. It, it fills up your mental capacities as well as physical capacities. When we see darkness and need, let us be more like Christ to gravitate when we can towards it, not away. Jesus could have been anywhere. He, he spends his time up in the dark, up in Galilee, and he brings great light. L- listen to this. One commentator said this, persons apart from Christ, the light, are in a world of night. They are not able by themselves to open themselves to God. They sit under the shadow of death. They need Jesus to live and to see. In this first explicit reference to the nations in Matthew's gospel, light is not what the nations are or have in themselves. It is what comes to them in Jesus. This is why missions matters. We do not believe that the lost world who's never heard the gospel is going to be saved because they haven't heard the gospel. We believe that because they have sinned against God in their conscience and sinned against general revelation, the world that God has shown them, just like we all have, that they, like us, deserve condemnation for the sins that they've committed in their own conscience, and that God would be right to judge them for what they've done, just like me. And therefore, the good news is only good news, as it's been said, if it gets there in time. If there's darkness out there, those people in darkness don't have some kind of light without Christ. They just have darkness without Christ. And so we owe it to them since we've been given this incredible gift and privilege of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Let's get that to people who need it. Whether it's locally someone we know or for some of us it will be perhaps long-term missions where our life will be invested overseas or in other cultures where it's not going to be easy. In the 1040 window... You know what I'm talking about. The 1040 window is the most lost part of the world. North, northern, you know, North uh, Africa, you're dealing with a large chunk of Asia, India, China. There's, there's a whole enormous uh, area where you've got Hinduism, Buddhism, you've got Islam, very little Christianity in the 1040 window. And most of the people there don't want Christian missionaries to go bring the light into that darkness. Most people don't want that. And so for those who may be called by that, to, th- to those who, who sense that that's where I should go or believe that's where they should go, we need to be thinking, how, how can that be something that we can help with, whether we go or whether we help send people who themselves will be going? Now listen, what does this darkness even mean, that people are sitting in darkness? Darkness is obviously metaphorical for not having light when it comes to the most important issues in life. Here, here are the kind of questions that if you, if you can't answer these rightly, you're in the dark. And that's a place of great need. Listen, who made me? Who made me? What was I made for? What is wrong with me? How can what is wrong with me be made right? What happens after I die? Now listen, the richest people in the world, some of the richest, most famous people you've ever seen, people up on this, all the celebrities, all these people you listen to, when you hear them interviewed on talk shows, they don't know how to answer any of those questions. 
They talk about money. They talk about fame. They talk about fun. They talk about maybe drugs and whatever, sex, drugs, rock and roll. They, they talk about the pleasures of their life. When it comes to who made me, what, what was I made for, what's wrong with me, how can what is wrong be made right, and what happens after I die, they usually make some kind of silly joke to kind of get out of the awkwardness of that question. I've seen over and over again people saying, yeah, I, don't, I, don't have, I have no clue. One famous Famous celebrity said, what, they asked him, what happens after you die? He said, I haven't a clue. That was his answer. Listen, you may be incredibly sophisticated in this world. You may have an incredible Fortune 500 company. You might be making tens of millions of dollars a year. If you cannot answer those questions, you're in the dark. And Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus will come and show us the answer. God, the God, the triune God who loves you and is holy made you. He made you in His image with dignity, value, and worth. You were made for Him. You were made to know Him, to be loved by Him, and to love Him in return. You were, you were made to glorify Him, to honor Him, to lift up His name, to live for His praise and His renown, not for your own. What's wrong with me is sin. It's not a popular word, but it is true. There is something deeply wrong with my heart. It gravitates towards the wrong things. It doesn't gravitate toward the right things. There is sin in me. There is sin in your life. It is the most serious thing wrong with you. What's, the most important thing wrong with you is not a physical defect. The most important thing wrong with you is not what someone has done to you, although people can do horrible things. I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying the worst thing in your life is not what's happened to you. The worst thing about me and the worst thing about you is your sin and my sin. That's the worst thing. And what can be done about it is Jesus died for sinners. He made a way for sinners to be clothed in His righteousness, and our punishment can be paid for by Him so that when I die, it's not everlasting darkness, it's not a lake of fire, it's not the outer darkness, it's not weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is what I deserve. It's open arms from the Lord Jesus. It's seeing His faith face, being satisfied by His likeness when I awake. That's what I am made for, and that's what's available to any who will turn and trust in what Christ has done. Jesus said, John 12, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who, listen to this, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. That's the darkness that Jesus will save you from. Listen to Martin Luther. Papa Fred, I've got a Martin Luther quote for you right here. You ready for this? So Martin Luther said this tremendous quote about this statement, about this idea of darkness. Luther says this, don't you think that this is an inexpressible light which enables us to see, think about this, what we see through the, the light of God's word, what, what, the, the, it's a light, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, this shows me what's real. What, what does Luther say? He says, it enables us to see the heart of God and the depth of the Godhead, that we may all, and that we may also see the thoughts of the devil. We know that the devil is real, and we know what he's thinking and doing because of the light of God's word. Otherwise, we would be in the dark. We wouldn't even know that there was a devil. And what sin is, and how to be freed from it, and what death is, and how to be delivered, and what man is in the world, and how to conduct oneself in it. No one, uh, no one before... No one before knew for sure what God was like and whether there even was a devil or demons, what sin and death were, let alone how to be delivered. This is all the work of Christ, the light of the world. You remember when Jesus was a week old and He's taken into the temple, remember, for that sacrifice of the firstborn circumcision that Mary and Joseph bring Him into the temple? And remember Simeon, the old man, 
And he, he finds out he's going to be able to, the Lord told him by prophecy, you will see the Messiah before you die. And he's just hanging on, I can't wait. And he's in the, he's in the temple and he somehow knows, maybe the Spirit is, is, is giving him the divine uh, revelation of something, a kind of prophecy. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And what happens? Simeon takes baby Jesus in his arms, he holds him up, he says what? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, listen, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So the one who is salvation in the presence of all peoples is also the light to the peoples, because it's the same thing. How I am to be saved is the light that I need, that I'm in the dark about. That's the whole point. He says, and and glory to your people Israel. One more quote, John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I, I don't say this with any mockery, but can you imagine living life not knowing with any certainty what will happen to you and where you will be five minutes after you have died? Can you imagine not knowing with any certainty the answer to that question. If I can just, I don't mean to, again, be silly here. You remember Betty White passed away a few months ago, remember? She was almost 100, I, I believe. And Betty White and Larry King, who both passed away since this interview, this interview is not that old. Larry King and Betty White were talking about death. Larry King always would ask his guests about death. I don't know if you remember this. Larry King Live, it was one of his shows on, online. And he said, are you scared of death? And Betty White said, absolutely not. It's exciting. I can't wait to see what's around the corner. I just have no idea. It's like, it's like opening a present. I just want to see what's out there after I die. And Larry King goes, no, I'm terrified. I'm scared of it. And then they, they, they moved on in the conversation. But since that interview, which is just a few years old, they have both entered eternity. And I don't think it, there was any evidence that either of them understood why we are here and what happens truly after death. So we can be so thankful for the light of God's Word that brings uh, clarity to what is happening. Let me move on to our second point here. This is the king's message. Probably some of this will have to move to a future Sunday, but we'll get through as much as we can. The king's message, verse 17, a very short but very important statement. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I just have to mention as a historical side comment that's important for church history. This is one of the extremely controversial verses of church history. Just hang with me on this for a second. Okay. This is going to excite about four of you. Are you ready? Wow. Uh, So, Jerome was an early church father who translated the Bible into Latin in the early centuries. It's called the Latin Vulgate. You may have heard of that, okay? That Bible became more important than the Greek Bible in the Middle Ages of the church. It's, a, it's strangely, so the, so the Catholic church really as it develops in the Middle Ages, the, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible was their Bible. That was the Bible that was read in mass. That was the Bible that was quoted all the time. No one was quoting the Greek. They were all quoting the Vulgate. Now, you say, who cares? Well, here's why that matters. Matthew 4.17 was one of the hotly contested verses of the Latin Vulgate. They translated it, Jerome translated it, and this is one of those massive errors of church history. He did not translate, it's the word is metanoia, to change your mind is the literal word for repent, to change your mind. And it, it doesn't just mean in your head intellectually. It's like if, you, if I, I was going to go to the store, but I changed my mind. That means you change your behavior too. 
right? So it doesn't just mean changing intellectual things. It means changing your life. But the word metanoia was translated into the Latin Vulgate, not repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the reason why that matters, repentance, as one commentator said, repentance is turning from, uh, turning from sin to God for mercy. It's just nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I clean. Repentance is turning to God for sheer mercy. Do penance is meriting actions that earn righteousness before God. You see how vastly different these are. So, this is one of those crucial statements that we must get right. The word is not and never has been do penance. That's a bad translation to say it nicely. This is the word repent, metanoia, to change your mind, your will, your affections, your behavior, your whole course of life is changed because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It may surprise you. Matthew, I believe, is the only gospel writer to include the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The other gospels have the kingdom of God. Matthew has a lot of the kingdom of heaven. And just to make this, this, I hope makes sense to you, a lot of people have said that's because Matthew is being sensitive to Jewish sensibilities. They don't like to use the name of God, and so he replaces God with a synonym that's the word heaven instead. And that, that may be part of it. I, I'm not convinced by that. I think Matthew is contrasting earth and heaven a lot throughout his gospel. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's contrasting the sphere of God's uh, current reign in heaven and the earth where there's still lots of sin and imperfection and God's kingdom needs to break in and eventually restore and renew uh, this earth. So what is the kingdom, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is present now. Later in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, listen to this, he's casting out demons this is 12.28, but if it is, the, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what Jesus is saying is, when, when the king shows up, the kingdom shows up with him. Because where the king is, the kingdom is. That's from another writer. But where the king is, the kingdom is. When the king comes, the kingdom comes with him. So when Jesus dies on the cross, there is the king reigning on the cross. When he is buried and raised, the king is raised from the dead. And right now, his kingdom is, is, is working in this world, is breaking in and changing uh, lives in this world. But the kingdom is not here in its fullness. I talked about this on a Thursday night recently. I think it was a couple weeks ago. But just real quick, let me repeat something. You have this present age right now that we're living in. It starts with Adam and Eve, goes all the way until the final return of Christ and the new creation. That's the present age. And then you have the age of the kingdom, right? The age of the kingdom started 2,000 years ago, and we're living in the overlap of the ages, right? So my body, my physical body is still, like as Paul will say in Romans 7, I still got this indwelling sin struggle. Right? Every day I can feel it. The temptations of my flesh are always there. It's because the old nature is still there and we need to fight against it, right? The old era, the old Adam is still there, but the Holy Spirit is within us. Christ is with us. We are in Christ. So the new era has broken in. If we're born again, we have the Spirit of God and we still have the, the body of death, right? The body of flesh. And these two things are interacting when we're in the in-between of the already and the not yet. His kingdom has been inaugurated 
It has not yet been consummated. It is here, but it's not here fully. That's why Jesus will say the kingdom is here, but then he'll say, pray that my kingdom would come. Well, which is it? The answer is it's, it's both. God's kingdom has broken in now, but it, is not, it has not come in its fullness. By the way, this is one of the mysteries that the Old Testament did not clearly reveal, but that the New Testament clearly revealed. In the Old Testament, you could get the impression that when the Messiah comes, the whole thing's over on the same day. There's no overlap. They just, the, the one age ends and the new age begins. But, but in Christ, the mystery is revealed that there's actually an overlap of more than 2,000 years of these two ages. That's why we are living in the last days. It's the overlap of the two ages, and the last days have been lasting for quite a few days. They've been going for 2,000 years at this particular point. Now, when you guys do Romans, as you guys continue through Romans, I just want to recommend either if you're able to attend or at least listening online, as they walk through Romans 6, you're going to hear more of an emphasis on what we have in Christ the already. We are free from sin. The dominion of sin has been broken. Satan no longer has dominion over us. We can count ourselves no longer alive to sin, but dead to sin and alive to Christ. We, we, you know, so, so what you guys have been teaching on the last few weeks, that's, that's the triumphant, the kingdom is here sort of talk. Romans 7 is going to emphasize more the continuing struggle with the old man, where Paul will say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Why is this always happening that I can never seem to have perfect motives? And I I always seem to be falling a little bit short. Even though I have the Spirit, I'm not all the way there. Or Philippians 3, not that I've already arrived or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has already made me His own. Do you hear the overlap of the two eras? It's triumphant, but it's also not too optimistic. There's a, there's a kind of negative side of, I still have a sin struggle, but there's also this ultimate optimism in Christ. And so Romans 7 and 8 will deal more with those issues in, in coming weeks, more than I can say uh, right now. As a word of encouragement, let me, let me remind you of 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Just, just listen to this. This is wonderful. See what kind of love, see if you can hear the already and not yet here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Is that already? Yes. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. Is that present? That's right now. That's the kingdom has come in a sense. We are there. We are His children. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you hear it? We're already His children, but yet it has not been fully revealed with our glorified resurrection bodies publicly that we are God's children in that sense, right? So, what we are now has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, physically, literally, bodily, from the skies, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Okay, a few more, few more points before we, we, we move towards the Lord's table. The kingdom advances, now this debate I think has kind of taken a break, but if this was 10 or 12 years ago, this would be a hotly contested moment in the sermon but you may just go, well, duh. If you say duh, that's awesome right now. But 12 years ago, this was like a fierce debate in evangelicalism. Do we bring the kingdom into this world? Do we, do we build the kingdom? Do we ourselves advance the kingdom, make the kingdom grow? Is that, there was a, for about 10 years, there was a huge movement of people saying, we build the kingdom ourselves. If you cut someone's lawn, you've just pushed back the curse against those weeds and you've advanced the kingdom of God in your yard. And I'm going, really? I don't then the kingdom's got a lot of work to do in my yard, is all I'm going to say, if that's the case. 
But uh, yeah, I don't think that's right. So the Bible never speaks about us ourselves making the kingdom happen or us building the kingdom. It's always the kingdom is advancing on God's timetable and God's the one bringing the kingdom. How does God do it? How is he doing it in this verse? Let me read 17 again. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how the kingdom does its work in the world. When this word is read, studied, proclaimed, preached, spoken over coffee, sent through a text message, talked about on the phone, this is how God does His work in the world. Turn with me to Colossians 1, where we were a couple weeks ago. Colossians chapter 1. This insight, I don't think we got to mention this a couple weeks ago. I, I want to make, make sure we think about this here. Look, look at Colossians 1, and you'll see this idea of what I'm trying to communicate. Look at Colossians 1 verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in the Lord in, in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Do you hear that? God, no. This is late in the sermon to make another technical comment. So hang on just a second here. I'm going to mention some Greek things. Just hold on. The Greek words here for bearing fruit and increasing, does that sound familiar? It's extraordinarily close to Genesis 1.28 in the Greek translation. Adam be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, did Adam succeed in that? Well, physically, yes, they multiplied. But did he succeed in multiplying God's image in the fullness form, fullest form across the world? No, because of sin, which marred God's image. So Jesus is the last Adam, and guess what he's doing? He is filling the earth. He's multiplying. He, he, he is bearing fruit and increasing. How? Not through biological children, although that can be part of the process amongst us having children and raising them up in the Lord. How is Jesus fulfilling this mandate to be fruitful and multiply? The gospel and the Word of God is doing it. God is empowering the gospel and the Word of God not to create physical people, but to create people spiritually remaking, remade in the image of Christ, re-showing re, re, uh, the character of Christ all over again, be, being formed in His image spiritually. And it is through God's Word that He does this work. And so the kingdom is advancing today. It really is. Kingdom is advancing. It's like, you know, the guy plants some seed in the backyard, the farmer, and he goes to sleep. He wakes up the next day, the plant is growing, he knows not how. Why? The kingdom is growing. How is it growing? It's not primarily through cutting grass and those kinds of things. I mean, you should cut your grass, but that's not, don't think of that as kingdom work, okay? What we need to think of is when the gospel and the word of God is proclaimed and people hear it and are born again and they begin to repent of sin, God's kingdom is multiplying and advancing across the globe. He is restoring the image of Christ in, in, his, in his sinful image bearers on earth and he is doing the great work of the kingdom now and one day it will come in its fullness. All right, let's turn to Matthew 26 as we draw near to communion. Matthew chapter 26. As you're turning there, the, the local church functions. Think about this metaphor some other time. You can think about this. The, I, I think it's a good metaphor I've borrowed from someone else. The local churches are like embassies of the kingdom of heaven on earth now. You know an embassy? It represents the other country in a, in a foreign place. 
right? And it get, so the local churches are almost embassies representing God's heavenly reign here on earth in the midst of this age. We can talk about that more on another occasion. Look at Matthew 26, and Jesus again here refers to the kingdom at the Lord's Supper. Let me start in verse 20 of Matthew 26. When it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, clearly, the, the, the elements that you see before you, we believe that these represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which was given and poured out for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we must make clear who this is for. If you are not a Christian, if you, do not, if you have not turned from sin and trusted in Christ, these elements are not for you, at least not yet. What you need is what the elements symbolize, what they represent, which is Jesus Himself. If you're not a Christian, we are thrilled that you are here. We would ask that even now in this time of prayer and quiet, as, as we're about to sing again, that you would even now turn from sin, release sins that are, that are in your life and holding on to you, and turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not living in unrepentant sin, we will invite you forward in just one second. Let me close with this final thought. So we've talked about the kingdom coming and God's great light breaking into the world through Christ and that we should also let our light shine. We'll talk about that in a few weeks in Matthew 5. But, but think about this. The, the very one who is the light of the world, he himself experienced the darkness that we deserve. You know, one of those horrible plagues in Egypt right near the end was the plague of darkness. It terrified all who were there. Day and night for a few days, it was completely pitch black where the Egyptians were living, right before the death angel came and the Passover lamb was there. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the lights go out. From high noon until 3 p.m., during the very time that Jesus is enduring God's judgment, God's holy and righteous wrath against your sin and mine, during those hours, He hung in the dark. Jesus was cast into outer darkness so that we could have the light that He brings. So let's welcome Him in our hearts as we, as we think and even as we pray together. Let's bow our heads. I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, You, you are truly the light of the world. And John tells us that when the light came into the world, we loved darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. And yet you, Lord Jesus, you chose to experience true darkness, the forsakenness of God the Father, that the light of His countenance was turned away.
and that you experienced the agony of the judgment of God against our sin and that you hung between heaven and earth in the midnight darkness of Gethsemane and of Golgotha. And God, I pray that as we come forward to these elements that we would celebrate the fact that you did not leave us in the dark, that you love to come towards the weak and the needy who are in the dark, in the shadow of death, and to release them from the fear of death and to give us the light of life. So God, even as we partake of these elements, help us to be so genuinely thankful for what you have done and what you are doing, putting up with us, continuing to sanctify us bit by bit, and one day you will glorify us. We will be like you because we will see you as you are. And God, as long as we live in this overlap of the ages, struggling with sin but yet moving towards holiness and repenting, God, help us to win more battles than we lose. Help us to have great victory over our sin. Help us to make real advancements in sanctification. And help us to honor you more in the next week, in the next month than we have previously because of your faithfulness and your work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.